Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this podcast contains some descriptions of physical and psychological violence. Please use discretion. In Syria, you could be prosecuted for not reporting a lost ID card. Also, losing your ID card in Syria means you will eventually be summoned to an intelligence branch. Every road in Assad's Syria leads to his security services in one way or another. And everyone is searching for a way to avoid encountering those infamous people. After 2011, the regime planted security checkpoints at entries and exits of cities and towns across the country, as well as inside the cities so it's almost impossible for people to move around without passing through a checkpoint. Thousands and thousands of people have been and continue to be arrested and disappeared at such checkpoints. Often, they are detained based on the area they're from, their family name, or even because of information found on their mobile phone suggesting they are opponents of Assad. Diab is right. Even losing your ID card can be very dangerous when you have to pass through a checkpoint. From message heard in the Syria campaign, this is Behind the Sun. I'm Nadia Bukai. After Diab left Syria in 2012, he went to Italy. It was supposed to be his new home away from Syria after his second arrest. But after 45 days in Europe, he decided to go back to Syria. I returned because I felt like I didn't have to stay in Europe. The regime was about to fall, and I didn't want to miss that. I didn't want to miss the joy of seeing Bashar al-Assad's regime falling apart. I couldn't imagine that moment without me being there in the street. It was impossible to imagine myself spending all of those years in the regime's presence, five years in Sednaya, and one year of the revolution that was full of war. I wasn't just relaxing with my family. I wasn't just sitting and watching. Of course, I couldn't let this moment pass me by. I felt that Events like that only happen once in all of history. But when he got back, he had some trouble. Diab had lost his ID card while in Italy and had to report that in a police station upon his arrival in Syria. That meant another interrogation by the intelligence services. And Diab couldn't just depend on luck this time. I consulted a guy I knew in the political intelligence branch who wanted to defect from the regime and was helping the revolution. He used to pass information to protesters. So I asked this man to check if it was okay to tell the police that I had lost my ID in Damascus. After two days, he called back and told me, delete me from your life. Don't just delete my phone number and get the hell out of the country. I just wanted to understand what was going on but he hung up. So I went and spent the night at my sister's house and I decided to leave for Lebanon the next day. 
There was a taxi driver I used to travel with. He wasn't there at the time. He was in Beirut. I decided I wouldn't even wait for him. I'd go immediately. It was just a few days after Diab got back to Syria. He took the difficult decision to flee once more. His dream of witnessing the victory of the revolution from inside his country was crushed by the fear of being sent behind the sun again. He knew well the grave risks of putting himself at the mercy of Assad's intelligence. He just couldn't put himself or his family through the horrific experience of enforced disappearance again. Detention for the regime, it's a way to control people. So they always have this system even before the revolution. For me, I found that detention is the most hardest one on families to use. They punish all the family. They make us feel the pain with the detainees himself. All his family, children, sisters and mothers. This kind of pain never stops. It's every day. You cannot stop thinking about them because you know what's happening inside. And regime use this way always to control people, to make them silent because the Syrian families know how much this kind of pain hard. Khofran's family had left their home in Daraya and moved to Damascus after Majd and Hab's arrest. The family stopped participating in the demonstrations, but were still active in helping protesters, the wounded, and the families of the disappeared. Sometimes, they donate money to buy medicine for those who were injured during the protests, or they visit the families to comfort them. In 2013, Gofran had not yet known about the execution of her brothers, Majd and Abed and Sidnaya. The family was still looking for them. Years later, they would know that Assad's regime murdered both Majd and Abed back in January 2013. In April 2013, regime break into our house at night and they took my eldest brother Muhammad and my younger brother Bilal. We know later that the security branch 215 of Mukhabarat took them. That night, they start to search everything in the house. They threaten us by big kind of guns. Even my mom, she asked what they did. My brother, he never answered her. And He said, only kind of routine searching. All the family was terrified, and my nephews were young child, and he was crying. They took them, and you cannot do anything. You feel very hopeless. They took them by car, and also they stole a lot of money from our house and the computers, the laptops. My dad has his money from his shop, also they took this money. Branch 215 is one of the most notorious Assad regime detention centers where torture and mass executions were carried out on a daily basis after the revolution. 
The branch of death is what many would call it. Like most of the military intelligence branches, 215 is located inside a densely populated area in Damascus. We know where is the place for 215, and we try to have any information. Also, we try to pay money to release them, because at that time, this branch called the branch of death, it has bad reputation. We tried a lot of times, but we couldn't. Later, we had a call that Bilal arrived to Adra prison. For a France family, getting that call from Bilal's cellmate in 2014, months after Muhammad and Bilal's disappearance, was very good news, since their efforts to visit Majd and Abed in Sidnaya seemed impossible at that time. At least they knew Bilal's whereabouts. After dawn, we prepared ourselves, me and my mom. We didn't talk my dad because my dad has heart issue and heart problems and we don't him to be in this situation. And sometimes soldiers very harsh and rude. So we went only me and my mom. The trip usually it's long to Adra. It's full of a checkpoint for regime. In every checkpoint, always you have this fear, maybe they will take me or my mom. So it was difficult because if they know more information about my sister and her activities or my brother and his activities, also they will punish us more. Because at that time, all the families still participate. And there is also part of the road where is a kind of fighting between the regime and free army. And this place very dangerous because the shooting from two sides. And in Adra, the prison was packed full. Uh, everywhere crowded with the prisoners. Uh, the prison just have to be 3,000, its capacity, I mean. It become 15,000 prisoners in the end. Nowhere to, to sleep, to sit. Everywhere crowded, everybody screaming. It is a hard time. On the day of Khafra and her mother's visit, we arrived there. I went to the kind of window. I have to take the visit card. And there you meet a lot of mothers and families. They came from different counties in Syria. A lot of them, they don't have any information about their detainees. Finally, the soldier gave me the visit card and there was a picture. When I saw the picture for Bilal, I thought they are mistaken. My mom at that time were behind me in the queue. I saw Bilal uh, before her. And when I saw Bilal, he was like, a dead body, and a lot of torture signs still visible. He cannot stand. He was crying, and directly he told me, he said, I want to tell you something important. I want to tell you that Muhammad passed away inside 215. Uh, in the branch of Mukhabarat. And 
I start to shout to Bilal, please stop, stop. Don't say that. I ask him if he is sure. And at that moment, my mom arrived to the place. So both of us stopped talking, only crying. And my mom started to cry also because Bilal was in bad situation. He was very sick uh, and one of his legs was injured. My mom asked him about Muhammad. He said, I don't know. We spoke uh, like around 10 minutes and because he was very sick, uh, he went inside again. He didn't complete the visit. All the way from Adra to Damascus, I was crying. And this long road, I didn't sit near my mom because I don't want her to see me crying. All the way, I was thinking about Muhammad and his wife and his baby. And they took him before his birth. All the way to the house, I was thinking how I can see his baby and to answer his wife if she asked me, because I'm sure she will ask me what Bilal told us about Muhammad. I didn't go to the house that day. When we arrived to Damascus, I said to his wife that I'm very tired, I will sleep. But I never sleep that day. I decide to go to see Bilal again. But in this time, I want to see him without my mom. But my mom never allow me to go there alone because it's a dangerous place. Khafran spent many sleepless nights planning on how to verify the information from Bilal without letting her mother know anything. In second visit, only I had like short minutes also to speak with Bilal when my mom was busy with the queue. And he said Muhammad was very sick and they took him from the room and all the titanies inside the room, they started to say that he is dead. He don't know what happened after they took Muhammad from their room. So uh, I don't have... uh, a lot of information. It was heavy information. I told only my sister Amina. I didn't tell anybody because I'm not sure about the information and because I don't want them to apply this situation about Abed or Majid because already we have enough tragedy and enough stress. Hofran's family is one of tens of thousands who have gone through similar situations. That limbo of uncertainty is devastating to the families of the detainees. Dictators like Assad withhold the truth because he wants to make it near impossible for anyone to be certain of anything. With little information present, Assad can control the definition of facts as much as he likes. 
The other dilemma with this uncertainty is that it leaves people to anticipate the worst. With each passing day of Assad's grip on power, all the government documents were losing their worth. The Syrian currency was in freefall and prices were soaring. Living a normal day in Syria at that time was a luxury. 100,000 Syrian pounds wasn't even enough to help my father Najah flee Syria to Lebanon in 2014, after he was released from detention in Branch 227. He had paid that amount to an intelligence official to clear his name at the border, but the man was a fraud. My father was arrested again while crossing the border to Lebanon and was sent back again to detention. My mother and I had to go back to Damascus to figure out how we could get him out. A couple of years earlier in 2012, when Diab was trying to flee Syria without his ID, he was stopped by an intelligence checkpoint on his way to Lebanon at the bus station. They searched Diab and his phone and found an SMS about an activity related to the revolution. They took me beneath the stairs of a bridge and stripped me naked. I felt miserable. Imagine yourself in the street, completely naked. They surrounded me so I couldn't escape. One guy started to ask me questions. Where are you going? What are you going to do? Intelligence agents are on the way to take you to a security branch. He asked me about the SMSs they'd found, and I said, it has nothing to do with the events. He started a basic interrogation and pretended to speak over his walkie-talkie. Honestly, I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. There was evidence against me. There was that message though. However I lied, when I wound up in the security branch, This time, there would be no escape. The words of the sympathetic political intelligence agent I'd ask about my ID were a clear indication too. When he told me to leave the country, that this time they really had something on me and there would be no way out. And indeed, if they took me to the intelligence branch, I never would have gotten out you probably would have found me in Caesar's photos. Caesar, welcome to the program. It's not your name and you are in disguise. How dangerous would it be if people knew who you were? Caesar is the alias given to a defected Syrian army forensic photographer to protect his identity and life. In his only interview with Amanpour & Co. on PBS and CNN International in 2019, his face was blurred and his voice was distorted and voiceover. When working for the Syrian officials before the revolution in 2011, he used to take images of the dead bodies inside the army, deaths that were mostly caused by injuries, accidents, or suicide. But after the revolution, he took tens of thousands of photographs of detainees killed inside Assad's detentions. Caesar, did you ever dare ask your superiors what was going on? Who doesn't live in Syria doesn't understand the situation of how much fear there existed within us. Even the pathologist had a high level, a high rank, but he was terrified of the intelligence. The intelligence officers that were with us 
Uh, it was terrifying. It was not allowed for us to ask any question. Eventually, Caesar defected and left Syria, smuggling 55,000 photos of approximately 11,000 dead. More than half of them died in detention. Taken between March 2011 and August 2013, the collection that shocked the world became known as the Caesar Files. In the images, a significant number of bodies show signs of starvation. Other injuries include burns, bruising, gouged eyes, marks indicating strangulation, and signs of electrocution. When the files were made public in 2015 by Caesar Files Group, families, who were kept in the dark, had to go through these horrific photos in search of their loved ones. Bofran's brother, Mohammed was in branch 215. It was very difficult and hard because in beginning, I want to search for Muhammad picture, but because you have to be very focused, because in my mind, I know maybe his body changed, his face changed, so I have to focus to know if this picture correct. And they are horrific pictures. So I start also to imagine Abed and Majid and I couldn't sleep a lot of days because I'm watching these pictures. I start to imagine what happened to these bodies before they died, how they felt, how they lost their hopes when they are waiting for us to help them. I stopped searching because it's affected me badly emotionally. Bilal was fortunately released, and Khafran's family sent him outside Syria. But despite the horrors he endured inside Branch 215, he also looked for his brother's photo. He had hope that Muhammad might be still alive. Bilal later finds a picture for Muhammad. Going through the photos wasn't easy. But at least it gave them the truth. Yet they never told their mother and father, who still didn't know anything about Muhammad's death. When my mom speak about Muhammad and he will come back, it was kind of torture to me. Even when she told his son about how his dad will come and will play with him, her hope. For that, it was difficult for me to hear that because I know that maybe he will not come back anymore. It was very hard to hide my emotional and my feeling. So a lot of time I sit in my room and I cannot face his wife and his son. I cannot make them lose the hope because I don't have certain information uh, until we find the, the picture from Caesar pictures. I decide to tell his wife because I believe her right to know the information. I decide not to tell my mom and dad because my dad's sick and has heart problems. I don't want them also to lose hope about 
Majid and Abed. So I told his wife, only his wife, I told her what I know and why I didn't tell her before I told her that I wasn't certain about the information and only there is this picture. Around this time, the regime had intensified the arrest campaign after Assad had the full backing of Russia. Vladimir Putin's war machines were bombing cities to the ground and forcing thousands of families to flee their homes. Russia's intervention has helped Assad stay in power with a twisted crusade against whoever refused Assad's rule. Hufran's family eventually had to flee to Lebanon. They tried to stay close to Syria because they were trying to locate Majd and Abed. But my mom in Lebanon was very sick. All of us were worried because we left our brothers inside Syria. It was very heavy on me. I told them all the story from the beginning, how Bilal told me, how we become uncertain about the information and why I didn't tell them from the beginning. I told them all the story. I told them about Caesar Bikitcher. It was a very sad moment because my eldest brother, Muhammad, it's also like kind of a friend for my dad. He always with him in his shop. He worked with my dad in my dad's shop. It was shocking, sad. They both uh, were crying, my mom and dad. Official Assad documents consider whoever opposes the regime a terrorist, state destabilizer, or rioter. Regardless of the atrocities that the regime has been committing with the Syrian people, often Assad loyalists say the victims brought terror to themselves. They say whoever lives safely and peacefully wouldn't be harmed by the intelligence forces. They will be fine as long as they don't get in the way of Assad's regime. The older ones used to tell us that as long as you're away from problems, the problems will stay away from you. That was our rule number one. This is Noor. It's not her real name. She chose to use a pseudonym in fear for the safety of her family, who remain in regime areas. She's a Syrian woman with no history whatsoever with activism. She was what the Assad regime might call an obedient citizen. But in the end, it almost doesn't matter how obedient you try to be. Noor is just one example of how the injustice has found its way into everyone's life. Noor got married one year after the revolution in early 2012 and had a big wedding, as she says. She wanted to live a peaceful life as best she could. And with her desire to live a peaceful life, she bought into Assad's propaganda. In our bubble, we couldn't open the TV on the big news like uh, big channels like Jazeera or Arabia or BBC we couldn't, that was forbidden we were getting away from problems we were running from them whenever the war was getting closer we were getting farther away from the war we were running to another city to another village every year I I remember I was moving to another house I moved to, to about nine houses in about six or five years. 
Just moving, moving, getting away, getting away, just like that. Noor was hopeful and optimistic about the future. She had a baby later in 2012. And despite the constant moving, she wanted to have more children in Syria. Then I had another baby in 2013, but actually he died. Uh, We were refusing the idea that we were hurt too. It's right that the bombs didn't come over me and the bombs didn't hurt me in person, but actually the day that I lost my baby, uh, it was the day that the airplane struck uh, my house. I got really, really sad and I got really devastated. So I lost my baby. So I was hurt even though I was living into that bubble. One day in 2017, Noor's husband was kidnapped from the street. At the time, Noor was happily expecting another child. They came in the early morning, about 4 o'clock. I wasn't afraid at all. Uh, I just was pregnant, 9 months. The intelligence men arrested her husband's whole extended family as well. What would they do with a pregnant woman and... uh, an old lady and another pregnant woman and a small bunch of nobodies. We're not important. We're not that dangerous. So I thought, okay, it would be a day or two or three or a week. Nothing's going to happen. So I was very brave. I wasn't afraid. The whole family were taken to the Mezza military airport camp, southwest of the old center of Damascus. No matter how Noor tried to use logic with interrogators, they kept accusing her of assisting the rebels, along with her husband and the whole family. They didn't release her after a day or two, as she anticipated. I know the symptoms. I know what would happen, so I felt it. I know that I, I'm getting birth. I asked for an ambulance. They told me, we will, we will bring you an ambulance. Don't cry, don't be afraid, we will bring you an ambulance. I really wish I had birth in that place, in the cells, and didn't have birth in the military hospital. That was the worst part of the detention. It was very, very bad. Of course, the fear kills every cell of your brain and your body and actually paralyze your body, your thoughts, your everything. I was afraid. I was really afraid that I would die. And they didn't treat me well. The blood on the ground and the the unclean tools of the surgery, it was really, really bad. I thought if I didn't die of birth, I would die of infection of that place. And I I had that infection, actually, (laughs) when I got birth. I got ill, I got sick, really, really bad. Of course, they didn't give me any pills, any... uh, No, no, nothing, no, nothing, no needle, no nothing. And while I I was getting birth, the police officer, it was a girl, of course, kept pushing me on my tummy, on my on my chest and like hitting me and slapped me a few times on my face. Uh, she was uh, sleepy and she wanted me to finish this thing. So <laughs> she kept yelling me, come on, finish. Let's get this finished. Let's, you know, come on, get up. Stop whining, stop crying, stop doing this. It was, it was really torture. <laughs> 
was really torture. Uh, of course, they they gave me my daughter without any clothes, without any diapers, without any no bath, no water, no nothing, no food, no nothing. I just wanted a sip of water, but they didn't give me even that. I, it was it was very tragic. Noor grabbed her baby in her clothes and was waiting for them to take her back to the cell to be reunited with her family. Instead, they took her to another room in the hospital full of coffins. At first, I was afraid that there was real dead bodies in it, but they were just preparing it for the for the people who died. There was spider all over the place and blood all over the walls and mouses, and uh, there were two leather beds, so sc- scratched and broken and very, very, very dirty. The place itself looked like a tertian cell. It was very, very disgraceful. That was the point where I had this breakdown that I really started crying because there was nobody, nobody's there with me. I kept crying for about an hour. That was the point I realized that it's not okay, that we're not staying for a day or two, that this is serious. I realized it, it's becoming true. Those aren't just lies. And I I remembered all the, the, the talk of the Assad regime's cells and the Assad regime's methods of torturing. And I remembered everything. That's when I realized there's difference between knowing and realizing. We know the thing, but you don't realize it. We were trapped and we need help. The investigator said that I may stay for another 15 or 20 years. I, that was the moment I believed he was really honest, not really just threatening me. Noor's daughter was taken from her after 40 days of her birth and was sent to an Assad-affiliated foster house. More than eight months had passed since her detention and she had no idea when this ordeal would end. Until one day, they came to take another baby from their mother. Noor had a breakdown and started to knock on the door and scream unstoppably. After a while, came an intelligence officer. He told me that you didn't do anything. You were supposed to get out. There's no charges on you, no real charges on you. You were supposed to get out, but it looks like the, the big general doesn't want you to get out. That's why you're here told him, okay, when I'm going to get out? He told me soon. Actually, very, very soon. I told him he is a liar and uh, it's just a joke. It's just a game. He told me, no, no, I'm not lying on you. I didn't lie. (laughs) And he wasn't lying. We got out after about a week. I don't remember, 10 days maybe or seven days. I don't remember. But we didn't go home. (laughs) We went to another place, another detention. Noor was assigned to the Second Field Military Tribunal in Sidnaya. Since 2012, this court has been responsible for condemning tens of thousands of Syrians to their death inside Sidnaya. The proceedings before the military field courts are entirely arbitrary and often last just one or two minutes. They cannot be considered legitimate. As Sidnaya doesn't have a woman's cell block, all the women were kept in Adra until their sentencing. 
every single day the general calls and gives his instructions. So we used to wait for that call. We used to wait to hear our names, to hear our <laughs> names and last names calling for death. But that was very nerve-wracking. They take the girl suddenly, like out of the sudden, they, they pull her out of her room. They tell her to pack up her things and come with them. Of course, because there are girls there, there was an old girls there. So they tell us that this is the day, this is the day you're going to die. So the girl gets afraid. She cries, she, she yells, she tries to run. But the officers uh, run after her and maybe they can pull her from her hair, from her clothes. They, they don't care. No one will punish them. No one will judge them. They can do whatever they want. So when the girls witness that, it gets really scary situation. I witnessed that day a lot of times, maybe six or seven times. And we were waiting for our turn. It was moment of weakness we all have that moment you have it in your heart in your brain you even start to have it in your face why why is that happening to me i didn't do anything wrong in my life i didn't hurt anyone with each passing day noor thought they would call her name she was thinking at least she can save her daughter before she dies but if she didn't manage she was fearful of what that would mean I got afraid that if I died, no one will admit she was existing. She called her mother. I told her, you have to move very fast, especially that at the time they gave my husband's family a certification of death for my husband. So I knew if my husband was dead and I was dead, no one will ask about the girl. No one will get her out. So I wanted to get her out before I die. So I told her, you should move very fast. So we hired a lawyer, a very powerful lawyer that has his connections. Of course, I knew him by the girls in the prison. He took very strong and large cases. So I took his number and I told her to have the shot. So she did. She kept trying after that for nine months. Eventually, the lawyer told her, I didn't have any way but to go to the airport. You have to go by yourself, by herself alone, and go and take the girl and sign papers. Eventually she took her. Of course, we paid a lot of money. Nothing works without money in Syria. After she got out by the age a year and a half, I've seen my children. And the visits, of course, they didn't recognize me. It was a hard moment. Actually, it was worse than the detention itself. When they see you and they cry, they think you're a stranger. You try to convince them that you're, you're, you're their mother. The resilience of the detainees' families and their determination to fight for their loved ones has always inspired me. I remember how my mother sold everything she had to get my father out of prison. However, they transferred him to Adra instead of liberating him. There, my father met Riyadh and the rest of my story with him is history. After his release, we crossed the borders to Lebanon in 2015. If it wasn't for the money my mother paid, 
maybe my father would never be free. Money and luck, again, were what also saved Diab at the borders when the regime men were searching him. The way they blackmailed me and threatened me with being taken to the security branches really destroyed me. I kept suffering from this encounter specifically for over five years, especially the first three years after the incident. The story ended when one of the two guys who were interrogating me told me, we want to help you, but clearly you don't want to help yourself. I told him, anything you want, just tell me what you want. He gave me my clothes back and returned the $500 they'd confiscated, then gestured for me to give him some of it. I gave him $100, and he gestured again, as if saying, we are two people, just $100? I gave him another $100, and these $200 saved my life. The border guards put Diab in a taxi heading to Lebanon, and Diab paid the driver another $100 to help him sort his papers issue and cross out of the country. When we crossed the Syrian and Lebanese borders, passed the Lebanese flag, and finally arrived in the border town Al-Masna, I asked the driver for a cigarette. It took me maybe two puffs to finish the cigarette. The driver was shocked. I asked for another one. I was in total disbelief that I was still alive. I couldn't believe that I was saved. This story stayed in my mind for around five years. Three of those years with constant nightmares about this specific incident. My wife could tell. I used to see the moment when they stripped me naked and put me in that place in the street while I waited for the intelligence patrol to come and take me away. The countless atrocities committed by Assad and his allies, Russia and Iran, have forced millions of Syrians to flee their homes, sometimes with nothing but some clothes or important papers, and sometimes with nothing at all. After two years in Adra, Noor and her husband's family weren't executed. Their death sentences were commuted to five years in prison by a presidential pardon, meaning that they were eligible for parole. But Assad was using these pardons to show himself to be a merciful leader, forgiving the rebels. It was a public relations stunt. In 2020, the parole was turned into a prisoner exchange agreement with the opposition. The regime got back loyalists and militiamen in exchange for releasing detainees from Assad's detention centers. Noor and her husband's family were among those released. But there was one condition. Upon being freed, they would have to leave the regime-controlled areas. We didn't want to be exiled outside of Syria. Even though we know that the situation in Syria was getting really bad, but we wanted to see our parents, our families, our schools, our homes. We couldn't sleep. We kept talking and crying and remembering things that we we've been through. We couldn't sleep for days. They actually offered us pills for that. 
we couldn't sleep for a long, long, long time. We had fears that if we went to sleep, we will see dreams or nightmares of prison again. It was not only former prisoners like Noor who could no longer return to regime-controlled areas. Many families, perceived to be opponents of the regime, were also unable to return home. For me and my family, we cannot go back because the regime is there. And only we can go back if the regime destroyed because he will punish us again. We dream always to go back to Syria, but it's not our choice until the regime is over. Far from home, Rufran wants to understand what happened to her missing brothers. And Noor is desperate to find out the truth about her husband. I have this small paper that says that he's dead. I don't know if we know or realize the truth. I just know there's a paper that we don't believe. We can never believe anything that they say, that the Assad regime says. So right now we're not believing, we're not convinced yet. If he's dead, we want a proof. It's our right to have a proof that he's dead. Not a piece of paper, of course, signed by a liar, probably. Of course, a liar. So we want a proof, maybe uh, somebody who saw him, maybe a body or anything, or... Maybe he's alive and we will still try to get him out of there. We won't stop seeking answers. If it wasn't for the horrific photos Caesar had made public, thousands of families would have known nothing about the deaths of their loved ones. The regime still our right to grieve like normal people or to even to be sad, you cannot. My nephew asked me, always they have this kind of hard questions. Where my dad? Why he, he is not with us in this important moment? Where is the grave now when we told them they are dead? Where is their grave? Why we cannot visit their grave? And it's very hard to explain to children this information or this situation because they are young and it's harsh information. I don't like any family to have this situation or this kind of pain when you are not certain. Even now uh, we still not certain because we don't have anything solid or solid information. So I don't like any family to be in our case, or even there's now lots of family in Syria who have same situation. Bufran joined the Caesar Families Association, a group of families who identified their loved ones in Caesar's photos. Her sister Amna co-founded Families for Freedom, a woman-led movement that calls for freedom for all detainees in Syria. They both continue to campaign tirelessly, alongside many other families and activists, to demand truth and justice for their loved ones who have been detained, tortured, and forcibly disappeared. Next week on Behind the Sun, we find out how Riyadh got out of Adra prison and how he and his long-lost missing friend from Sidnaya, Diab, found each other again. 
Behind the Sun is a co-production between Message Heard and the Syria Campaign, in collaboration with the Association of Detainees and the Missing, ADMSB, and the Syrian Center for Justice and Accountability, SJAC, under its project On the Margins No More. The series is written and produced by Mohammed Farouk. Thank you to Ronim, Ola, Sarah, Mays, and Rory from the Syria Campaign and Raha from ADMSP for helping put this series together. Voiceover for Diab was presented by Mahmoud Nawara. Editing, mixing, and sound design was done by Yerik Zaba and Ivan Eastley. Additional production support from Molly Freeman, Tom Biddle, and Lincoln van der Westhazen. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Milo Evans. My name is Nigel Bukai.